Okay, today my guest is Professor Paul Waller. Did I say it right? It's just fine. Thank you. I will keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Paul as a person. Professor Waller is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I will skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Waller is an AIB fellow. His scholarly and practice-oriented publications address issues at the intersection of IB, law, and politics. He sits on the board of Global Strategy Journal, is a senior editor at JIBS, a consulting editor at Journal of World Business, and is a co-editor-in-chief of the Social Science Research Network, SSRN, Global Business Issues. He also serves uh, the AIB as chair of the Ethics Review Committee. He has written over 50 articles, books, chapters, technical reports, and proceedings. He frequently comments on current business and legal issues for WCCO News Talk Radio. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Paul, uh, what, did you, what did you want to become when you were a child? It's a great question. You know, I am born about uh, 1,000 meters from where I work today. I was actually born <laughs> at the University of Minnesota, and I work at the University of Minnesota's business school and law school. So if there are aspirations for traveling, I haven't done a very good job of it. But uh, having grown up here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, uh, one would think that perhaps the, the aims of our work and our aspirations for a career might be limited to the area. We're not on either coast, like New York and the Atlantic Ocean or LA and the Pacific, but it ends up that Minneapolis and St. Paul is a headquarters town for many large corporations, many more than our population might merit at first. And those corporations are some of the most iconic multinational corporations uh, that we study in international business, for example, 3M is Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing, or General Mills and the, the Pillsbury Doughboy, uh, or in some measures, the largest private company in the United States, Cargill, which is the great grain and commodity trader based here in suburban Minneapolis. So I grew up with big companies. I grew up with families that worked for them. And during their uh, lifetimes and their careers, they would frequently be gone for two or three or four years because they were working at some of the subsidiaries abroad in Europe or Asia or Africa. So as I grew up, I grew up with a keen sense of how corporations could be a force internationally, how they could be an important influence on the career of families and, and be a force for good. I saw how it personally helped my friends growing up develop as people and as young citizens. And so by the time I was coming out of high school, coming out of college, I had a great interest in studying the workings of international business and its relations with international policy. It was a family affair. Well, how do you choose academia? Yeah, I get to academia with a little sidestep. So I spent considerable time getting first my undergraduate and then my graduate degrees. I was lucky enough after my undergraduate work in history to get two years to study at Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar. And there I had a chance to uh, broaden my academic horizons from medieval history that I studied as an undergraduate to the study of international political economy uh, and to do it with some of the leading scholars in the field in the UK. And then I did what many uh, young 
graduate educated individuals who weren't sure what to do with their career did in the 1980s. I went to law school. So I went back to the United States and I went to Harvard Law School and there were introduced to uh, the law as a field of study, but also as a field of practice and did what so many people did after the number of years of education and with the opportunities that law school presented, I went into private practice. And given my great interest in Minneapolis and St. Paul, I worked for a law firm for three years based in Minneapolis that served a number of those multinationals as their legal advocates. I found during that time that I enjoyed the study of law, but not necessarily the practice of law. Lawyers, notwithstanding what you see on television, are usually the people that come in at the end of a transaction and work on the details. I was somehow missing as an advocate and as a counselor of law, the, the basics of why are we doing this? How are we doing this? And was the last person in, essentially the policeman who said, you can't do that this way at this time, rather than the structuring. And so I had a number of engagements, counseling multinational executives or litigating on their behalf, where I kept keenly interested in the underlying economics and finance and strategy of the deals that I was then litigating or consulting on. And that's what led me to graduate school. That's what led me to the Carlson School of Business as the place where I went for my PhD. And I couldn't have been more happy about that because it was an opportunity for me to work with top scholars who understood and sympathized, who were excited about the same things I was and who appreciated my background, my professional background as a lawyer. And I spent the next five years getting my PhD at the Carlson School and being a part of the University of Minnesota. That's how I got there with a little sidestep from law back into academia and business. And who was your advisor? So it's an interesting thing. Um, to some extent, I was an orphan child. Uh, by that, I mean, I had two advisors as I worked through the PhD program, both of whom left the Carlson School uh, before I came, in one case, before I came up for my uh, dissertation defense, and another who left shortly after my dissertation defense. So at the time when I came back to the faculty, this time not as a grad student, but as a tenured faculty member, and my colleagues, many of whom had been there in the 1990s on the faculty when I was a doctoral student, my colleagues tell me afterwards that they discussed who it was who was responsible for Paul. And what they found was they couldn't remember who it was. So to some extent, my advisors kind of slipped off into the background. And not to say that I was in any way a self-taught scholar, I instead drew on the full range of this fantastic department. In fact, I went out of the department as well for my dissertation research, which was around political economy issues, uh, and drew on great scholars elsewhere at the University of Minnesota at our School of Public Affairs, the so-called Humphrey School, our law school, which uh, it, it was a, now a part of my life very much so, and more broadly to some of the other underlying disciplines in economics and political science. So I like to think that I was an orphan child, but essentially the whole community it takes a village as Hillary Clinton said, in my case, it took a, a village of scholars to get me through the PhD program. That's right. Um, something that is not on your CV that some, peop uh, some uh, people are going to find interesting, maybe your hobbies, interests. So one of the things that I think doesn't show up in the CV, or if it does, it's lost. We're in a business where so many of our colleagues 
are not native to the places that they live in and teach. You know, we're in a business that essentially advances careers uh, by the willingness to travel. And I've done that. And as we go into my career, I will show you that I've uh, accrued the mileage that's necessary to kind of move along in a career uh, by moving to different institutions. But one of the differences is that I'm, I'm one of, I think maybe two out of 20 or so members of my department at the Carlson School who actually come from the community that we serve primarily, where we are. I mean, literally, I'm the only one who was born there. And that's one of the things that doesn't necessarily show up right away unless and until there's some moment of engagement with the local community where I get to draw on the deep knowledge that I have, not just of the field that I study, but how it applies to the community that I grew up in. And that has been an advantage for me. It's one I don't like to emphasize too much because uh, it, it could come off as parochialism, but I think it's been to my advantage to serve in this particular institution through time. And as I've moved from serving not just on the faculty at the Carlson School of Management, but also at our law school through a chair that is a joint appointment, it's given me an opportunity to exercise that same combination of skills for a different professional community that is the legal community, that is a vibrant part of this city and of the broader international community because it serves so many multinationals. You're right, it's interesting. Not only we move from cities, uh, between cities, but states, and in, in my case, countries, right? So, uh, okay, you cannot choose being a lawyer and you cannot choose being an academician. Uh, if you stop doing what you're doing today, what's the second best career path? You know, one of the things it might sound as if uh, I'm kind of falling back, but had I not become an academic, I was almost certain that I would have maintained and, and built on my career as a lawyer. Uh, one is because uh, of the, the great company or the great law firm that I was a part of here in town. It's still a, a, just an important firm. Uh, two, because of the client list and the like. So I'm almost certain I would be a practicing attorney today. I might not be still with my firm. I might do what many firms and many lawyers did as they build their career to go in-house. That is to go into the in-house counsel, uh, one of these larger multinational firms, and then to try and turn that into a position that's more than just the corporate compliance or corporate cop position, which is what general counsel do as a default, but to take advantage of the fact that the general counsel is increasingly a counsel with power, another executive. And I think what I would strive to do is be a general counsel at a broad multinational where the general counsel would be an active participant in formulating strategy, not just talking about the legal and regulatory constraints on it. So I hope I don't sound too boring. I'd be a lawyer. Interesting. It's, it's very powerful. I mean, in, in your case, it's a very powerful force. Uh, regrets, have you got any regrets? You know, I, We all have different regrets at different stages, I think, in our career paths. And as we move along, we look back at them and say, sometimes those regrets are their blessings in disguise for us. So as I was building my career in the law, there were certain forks in my career road that I could have taken that would have kept me there. Uh, I'm very happy that I decided relatively early on in my career, as I look back at it, that I moved to academia. Because among other things, moving to academia, first in business, has, after a number of years, allowed me to come back to and study law as a field of academic research and as a practice. I often get an opportunity to consult on issues that involve lawyers. So 
in many ways, you could say the regret was to leave a practice that I was building and developing. But in many ways, I've also been fortunate many years later to come back to and be a part of that community, this time contributing primarily as a legal scholar, not as a legal practitioner. And Paul, what are you most passionate about? Uh, you know, what, I, what, I most, uh, what I'm most happy about and, 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 and pleased about is the opportunity that I get to, I think the thing that all academics pick up on is somebody's paying us to think about ideas for their own sake. And I think that's an incredible uh, gift that what the academic uh, scholar's life permits. Um, we're able to develop knowledge for its own sake, not necessarily for its instrumentality. It ends up, if it's good, it does have prescriptive implications for practice and for policy, but that doesn't need to be our lodestar. And that, for that, I'm happy. The second thing, and this goes back again to where I'm at right now, I can see how the things that I do matter for a broad community of scholars, my primary audience, I can see how it contributes to the related cosmopolitan community of multinational firms and of international investors and, and, and of politicians around the world. But I also see how it contributes immediately to the community around you. And in the, the four corners of the metropolitan area, Minneapolis and St. Paul and to the state of Minnesota. It, it, and it goes back to this curious uh, characteristic of having so many multinationals. And if you grow up, you're a little bit a part of the soil the ability to contribute locally, which is not always the case for, for academics. We may be located, for example, at a university, fine university that's in a remote rural area. So the constituency isn't geographically close. In my case, it is. The University of Minnesota and the Carlson School is about a mile and a half from the downtown core of Minneapolis where you see those multinationals. And I think those are the kind of things to me that are so satisfying to contribute broadly, cosmopolitan wise, but also to contribute locally, to see how it matters for people every day. Uh, Paul, how do you explain what you do and your uh, importance of your research to people who don't read your work regularly, but they are not sitting on the boards of big multinationals? You, you basically stranded in a small village. You, you went to a pub. Um, uh, these are locals. How no, do you explain? It's a great question, and it's not an academic one in my case. I grew up with so many people who, despite the fact that they went off for two or three years with their parents to go uh, be a part of a family that was being sent by a multinational to Europe or to Asia or to Africa, uh, they're smart guys and they're my friends. And when I explain sometimes what I do, they don't get it. And it's like talking to a 13th century farmer about Bitcoin. You know, they look at you like, there's no idea. But there are ways to talk about it. And that's so important because we don't translate our work then in many ways, we reinforce a stereotype of the academic as being in her ivory tower. And if that ivory tower is paid for by taxpayers, especially in the state, and in this case it is, we need to be able to tell our story in a way that grabs them as concrete and relevant. And so the way I tell the story when I'm at a pub or when I'm with, together with the people I grew up with, or now increasingly their children, um, is I tell them what was going on when I went into uh, my scholarly career. And when I began my scholarly career in the early 1990s, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. Uh, the Cold War had just ended. Uh, a whole regime that created barriers to foreign direct investment and investment generally was falling apart. We were kind of entering a new golden age of 
liberalized trade and investment, we're also entering an age of more competitive politics. There's one party states, military juntas, kind of family run countries around the developing world were transforming themselves to some lesser or greater extent into competitive uh, democracies with elections and with uh, all sorts of new pressures from new pressure groups uh, that were coming with it. And then the other thing was people were back on the move again. By the early 1990s, we were reverting back to something which was much more familiar to us if we were our own grandparents. Up until about 1914, uh, somewhere around you know, a half million to a million people would be moving across borders of North America, uh, would be millions of individuals. I think the fifth largest or fourth largest country in the world today is called Diasporia. It's, it's, it's people like you, Ilgaz, who live in a country other than where you were born or where you were educated. That was a new thing in the 1990s. Two world wars and a cold war and a lot of trade barriers had made it more difficult for people to move about. We were going back to that. So think of the trends at that time. Yeah. Uh, liberalization, deregulation, democratization, and migration. And those things interested me. What I wanted to know was how did that matter for a multinational? The way they made decisions about strategy and structure, the way they made decisions about foreign direct investment, the way they managed classic political risks with those country politicians. So when people ask me, what do you do? I said, I study reforms and what it means for a multinational. And I'm really interested in what it means in developing countries because they're the fastest growing markets for the big companies that are located right here in Minneapolis, St. Paul, but they're also the markets that have the most risk, particularly political risk. And those executives who run them now, Elgaz, the ones who run them in the 2000s, the 2010s and 20s, they've got to have a set of tools for managing that. They've got to be corporate diplomats in ways that their predecessors in the 1970s and 80s, even the early 90s didn't. I had a chance to witness that, to study at the time that that was happening. And I've made the last 20 to 25 years really about trying to document and uh, the evidence that helps us to understand what multinationals do and what they should do in order to be successful in that context of reform in developing countries. Well, what are these executives thinking about? What, what, what's keeping them uh, up uh, at night that, uh, that we are not studying in research? So what are the omitted variables in our research that actually these people are living through every day uh, that, that they are worrying about? What are these uh, things? So I, I really appreciate the question. And I wanna think about executives at two different levels. The levels that we typically interact with executives are when they're younger and at the mid-level. That's when they're getting an MBA, if they've taken a step out of the corporate marketplace for a moment, or if they're being supported by their companies, that's what they're doing at night and on weekends on top of their work. So a lot of the people that we get a chance to work with are at that mid-level. They're two or three steps away from grabbing for the brass ring, the leadership of their company, or breaking away and starting their own companies. So for them, what I try to inculcate in them is a sense of not just what it means to be a great manager and administrator inside of a, a, a multinational firm, a 3M or a General Mills or a, a Medtronic or a Target, which is all based here. But I try to get them to think about the job they're gonna have two or three iterations from now. I assume that if they're here 
and they're investing the time and money in themselves or their companies are doing the same, that they're being groomed for big decisions. And, and so not all of them are gonna run 3M, but some are gonna be there. They're gonna be, if they're not gonna run it, they're gonna be in the electorate that chooses that runner. And so I think about the kind of skills they'll wanna have at that level. And for me, I'd summarize it as corporate diplomacy is how we train executives who come to the helm or near the helm of a, a foreign, of a multinational corporation, um, how we get them to think about the other things above and beyond what happens and shows up in the balance sheet or the income statement or the cash flow statement, how they interact with politicians in the host countries where they have important investments, how they act as firemen and firewomen when those relationships go bad. If I think about an aspiring uh, executive for those mid-level executives, those mid-level executives I get, I think about, say, the head of international business at uh, Microsoft or the head of international business at 3M. She doesn't have a portfolio, a specific portfolio. Instead, what she's doing is she's going to different parts of the company, stepping in with their deep knowledge, integrative knowledge of how the company works, but more importantly, the different public stakeholders that these, these managers with portfolios will interact from time to time abroad, particularly in developing countries, particularly at times that are real pivot points, during elections, during periods of economic crisis, when the multinational and their investments really look attractive for re-regulation or worse, the kind of things that could threaten the assets for it. So that's what I think about. And then from time to time, I'm fortunate enough to get senior executives and I get a day with them or I get a few days with them. And for me, what I try to, what I try to do is figure out what's missing, what's missing in their, in their portfolio. They've got the tools, that's how they got there. And, and they're usually, there's always one thing missing, that's time. They never have enough time to kind of sit back and reflect on what it means to be a strategic manager. They're too busy going to meetings too busy responding to meetings, they're just too busy. So getting them getting them away from the office is one thing that's valuable. And then I think it's asking them, figuring out what's missing right now. For them, I'll tell you, give you an example of what's missing, I think for them right now, is to understand in the developing world, the importance not just of politicians that they deal with, and they do, but of a number of leaders of civil society, NGOs, and of other kind of players that help make international finance and business go. I'll give you one example. It's rating agencies. I've studied the major credit rating agencies like Moody's and Standard and & Poor's and Fitch. And of course, while they can have things to say about the United States or a given state that can have implications for the cost of credit, it matters, but not so much as it matters in a place like Turkey or in a place like in sub-Saharan African countries where the visit of an analyst from any one of those major credit rating agencies is like the visit of a potentate because if they change their views in that country, they can literally downgrade it and influence the cost of capital. That matters for the multinational, not because they're actually raising capital in those countries, but because those countries, when they're exposed to that switch, it can have a substantial change on their policy priorities. They can turn a budget deficit into a financial crisis. Moody's can turn you know, a, a currency shortage into a currency crisis with the decisions that they make, both positive and negative. And that matters for the kind of pressures that a senior executive at a, at a multinational enterprise may be dealing with. So I try to alert them to the players around the corners that they might not think about and how they can change 
the situation facing a host country politician, and then by implication, how that, that politician can change the life of that multinational. You know, looking around corners, that's the kind of thing we like to think we do with our work. We explain how things work, and we like to think that that will help them to understand what's next. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're not. Nationalism is, is interesting. I mean, it, it gives me a lot of things to think about, but nationalism is increasing. Um, under nationalism or increased deglobalization trends, uh, how are these things going to play out? The things that we just talked about, uh, the corporate diplomacy under nationalistic trends, how, how is that going to shape up? It's an incredibly important question. It, it's I'm just now working on a couple of pieces of research that are about how multinationals respond to populism, to populism both in developing countries, but more importantly, uh, the, the rise of populism in uh, the industrialized North, whether that's uh, Trump in uh, the United States or Boris Johnson and Brexit in the UK or the um, alternative for Deutschland in Germany. Uh, we have a number of different uh, individuals and parties that represent this. And that represents a new set of risks that we haven't totally appreciated in international business research. Now, let me connect the two. If you and I were having a conversation 60 years ago uh, or 70 years ago, we would be talking about the nationalistic tendencies of newly independent decolonized states. You know, there would be the Kwame Nkrumahs uh, in Ghana who are seeking the national the, the commanding heights of the national economy and would be using that in part to rein in multinationals that they had deemed to be cooperating too closely with the old colonial master. So nationalism and populism uh, would have been a part of our vocabulary and it's been a part of our research. The change today is the geographic location that so much of that now is happening in the industrialized north for different reasons that political scientists are much more intelligent uh, about articulating than I could be. But what that means then is that multinationals, those senior executives that I, oft, I, I infrequently get a chance to work with, or those mid-level executives I get a chance to, to work with often enough, they need a different set of tools. They need to know, for example, about how uh, the partisan orientation of a government that they deal with, typically right-wing, uh, conservative, um, Republican, those types of governments tend to be more sympathetic to the interests of investors and of foreign investors about how with a populist tinge, it's actually the opposite. That is, those pro-investment governments are pro-investment as long as you're domestic. They also have, remember with populism, an incredible streak of anti-elitism and anti-globalism. And so what that can mean is the strategies for foreign direct investment for a multinational can change substantially. It would pay, for example, to be partnered with a local company, a prominent local company, rather than to go it alone, lest you face the very discriminatory uh, behavior you're likely to get from a right-wing populist government. That's just one example. It's giving people new tools to keep up with these changes, which for me, Ilgaz, they stem from the same reforms that were begun when I was a graduate student in the early 90s. Just as we had uh, a, a wave of liberalism, which freed up trade and investment around the world, in many ways, it wasn't a wave as much as it was a tide, and tides ebb and flow. I think right now we're in a bit of an ebb as we try to figure out how to make the gains from globalization, democratization, liberalization, how we try to make them uh, reach a 
broader set of the populations that they were supposed to reach right away. That is working class individuals, blue collar individuals. That has, I think, in part led to this whipsaw populism in the industrialized North. So we're seeing that adjustment in policies until that adjustment comes and we go back to the flow rather than the ebb of those trends that I talked about. It means multinationals have to adjust. And that's just one of the adjustments, thinking about how to seem a little less foreign, a little more domestic and the ways that you invest. I think that's one of the real challenges. It's one of the real opportunities for our research right now. This was interesting. I mean, we talked about evolution in IB. We talked about the untouched uh, areas in research. Uh, this was very interesting. For the sake of time, uh, I want to uh, ask you about uh, the advice and mentoring portion. What are some of the uh, common mistakes that you see junior faculty or uh, young patients wants to Uh, that you want to warn, warn them about? So I, let me just think of it two ways, so guys, if that's all right. First about doctoral students and then about junior faculty. And then we, senior faculty, to some extent, if we once we make a mistake, we've got a little bit of a cushion in the way of tenure or other things that provide us with an ability to kind of make adjustments without a substantial change in our career trajectory. But for doctoral students, that's a different story. What I tell doctoral students early on is that when they get here, They may have some specific ideas about what they want to study, but it's a little bit like a juror. I ask them to keep an open mind and to keep an open mind as they're doing the first steps of their work, typically coursework, typically also research assistance work and teaching assistance work with more than one faculty member. And what I tell them is don't glom onto one person, especially early on. And that's often that person is me. And so I'll say, you need to be spending time with many of the different faculty in our department because there's so much to learn from them. So that's one thing, that's one piece of advice that I have for doctoral students. The second one that I have for them is don't take too long after you are prepared, after you've taken the preliminary exam and finished the work. There's a tendency I think today for doctoral students, especially doctoral students from out, who come from outside the United States to sit and with their you know, so to sit on their laurels as they uh, move along with their dissertation and they move along with all deliberate speed, sometimes too slowly. And the, there are many different justifications for it. Hey, I need to publish another paper or two beforehand. Uh, hey, I need to do this and that. I need to finish these things for this. In some extent, it's a lethargy born of just um, a wish not to change the situation. It's a status quo. I think that's a mistake. One of the things I encourage doctoral students is when they're going into their fourth year, that is after they've done their coursework and their qualifying exam, now it is time to focus. Now it is time for you to have a dissertation. And the place to sit afterwards and to spin out those papers and the like is in a postdoc. If they're not ready to jump right into a tenure track position, then it's an opportunity for postdocs. And while that's become less frequent in our business, there's still many of them there. And I encourage that at the Carlson School so we can attract postdocs who are in that position. So those are my two pieces of advice, keep an open mind early on, and then finish without undue delay and look for a postdoc before you start a tenure clock position. The things for the junior faculty member, I think are gonna sound pretty conventional. If you're at the right institution that values your research, they'll give you the time for that research. And while it's important to be a competent teacher and to be a cheerful service provider, It's also the beginning, the middle and the end that you'll be evaluated on the quality 
and to some extent, the quantity of your research. Quality is first and last, but both matter. And so it's deciding that that is what you're gonna do for the next five years, the next seven years, the next nine years. And you're doing that with the idea that you're gonna have a long career. One of the things that's wonderful about a career in the United States, there's no mandatory retirement. You keep healthy, you keep around young people who have great ideas, you, you spend time and emphasize the collegial aspects of a college, that is, you learn from your colleagues, you're gonna have a long career. And I tell junior faculty, focus now, get tenure, even if it means moving institutions with that investment, that portfolio research, you can do that. And then take advantage of the fact that this is a business, which if you do age, you age gracefully. And I think you age vigorously and, and you should take full advantage of it. And as I get older, I see that advantage and I see how young faculty and doctoral students motivate me to keep going for its own sake and to keep going and excited about engaging in different ways. So that's my advice, if that makes sense. Thank you. This was very helpful. Uh, last question because of the time. What is one question that I should have asked you but haven't? You know, I think one question that's important for any scholar is, um, how do you manage the scholarly business? That is, how do we manage the production, uh, the review process, and the publication of our research? Because at the end of the day, that is our stock and trade. We, the other things are important too, don't get me wrong. And, and I think if there were a question, it would be around the how do I try to manage it? And, I, and what I would tell you, frankly, is I don't manage it as well as some of my other colleagues. And part of the reason for that, Ilgaz, is I have such a breadth of interest. My colleagues look at me sometime and they think that, I veer a little bit too much that I could sit in a bunch of different departments, maybe even a couple of different colleges, which I do. And what that means is I take a little more time than others to produce work. And I'm willing to start work, which doesn't flower into publication. It's, it's just a choice of mine now. It's a way I like to manage my portfolio. I would say that once we're on the other side of our career development, we're on the other side of tenure, we're on the other side of promotion, we're on the other side of whatever that might be where you feel it. That's when we should do those things. I mean, at the end of the day, if you spend all your time bumping and grinding on the same subject, producing yet another article for a great journal, but it's an article that'll be read at the end of the day by dozens, maybe hundreds at most. I think it's a real chance for you to take chances and weigh in on debates that are happening, not just in your particular field, but in the fields that touch you, but would go off elsewhere. And my example is that I'm becoming more and more interested in debates that involve business, international business executives and international lawyers. I'm involved in debates that I think matter perhaps even more in political science and international relations than they do in international business. And I would never suggest that to a young junior scholar, maybe not even to a doctoral student, but I would for others. And that's the question that I've now answered because I just think it's so important. And I think it's why we get into this business. Again, to develop ideas for their own sake, to weigh in on debates and try and nudge them in a good direction. And if we can, nudge practitioners and policymakers as well. That's our job. Super, superbly interesting. This was very helpful. This was interesting. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for your time. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thanks. Ilgaz, it was my pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity to share. And, and I welcome any comments from those of you who get a chance to watch this. And I, I love the mission. Continue with it. Thank you. <laughs>